Hey friends, welcome back to the Create Connected podcast, a show where we explore creativity across art forms to help you level up your creative process and connect more deeply with your creative self. I'm your host, Jamison Lyon. I've been creating stories across art forms like music, writing, movement, and more for well over a decade. This episode's special guest is Uva Dreisegeka. I introduce him in full at the start of the interview. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Powered by the Ocreo. He's been creating companies since he was 14 years old from online games, ad tech solutions, software as a service, fintech, and no-code tools. Today, he's the founder of online invoicing tool InvoiceBerry and WordPress alternative BlogHandy. Beyond his depth of entrepreneurial ventures and skills, he's no stranger to a good hiking trail or ski run and has perfected the quintessential cafe, coffee, and co-working photo. He's also a friend fellow member, and welcoming personality in the Trends VC community. Uva, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me on the podcast. And hi to all the listeners. Fantastic. So I want to dive into a lot of the overlaps between creativity and entrepreneurship because I feel like there's there's a lot there. But first, actually, I want to hear about kind of the journey that got you to where you are today. So if you could, tell me the story of kind of how you went from a young teenager to by every measure, I think, a serial entrepreneur. And what are what are some of the moments that stand out to you in that? Right. So I think, uh, as you mentioned in the intro, the start was in online gaming. And that was just, you know, back in the day in Germany, where I was born and raised, I uh, played this online game. And I'm terrible at online games or at games in general. I tend to lose. And one day I was just so upset that I said, hey, I'm going to create my own game. And, you know, if it's my own game, I'm surely going to win. I can always, you know, just cheat. I can change something in the database, whatever. And, you know, I can I can um, win. So I took a weekend back then, created a game, got the first 100 players or so. Nowadays, you would call it a minimal viable product, an MVP. Back then, you know, we that's like 20 years ago, 22 years ago now. Uh, we didn't have a name for it, right? We I, I just created it, free hosting, free subdomain, and it was a white page with like some hyperlinks that were blue and purple, and you could just, you know, click around, um, build an island. It was sort of an island strategy game, a bit of like Age of Empires, but without graphics. Uh, that you could play in your web browser. And, you know, that's how it started all, basically. You got 100 players, and someone reached out who was probably 10, 15 years my senior. So I was still going to school. He finished his university. He already had a business. And he was like, hey, I want to buy um, your game. Uh, All right. And, you know, I, I was just 14 or 15 at the time. And I told him, okay, uh, I, I want to continue working on that. So he was like, okay, let's partner up 50-50. So my first ever valuation, so to speak, was 300 euros. So for 150 euros, he bought 50% of it. And it was mainly about just getting someone more experienced um, on board, you know, to help me. Uh, He got, you know, web designer involved. He got a server infrastructure rather than some free hosting. And, you know, he did some advertisement. I think back then we spent around three to 500 bucks and we got like 30,000 players into the game. 
So obviously that's like unheard of, right? Nowadays you spend 500 bucks, nothing happens, right? Um, <laughs> if you're lucky, you get like a few people onto your website. We got the first 30,000 players into the system. And, you know, that's 20 years ago. People paid per minute to get onto the internet and so on. So that was like a really successful start into my entrepreneurial journey. Mm-hmm. And I, I even remember... Uh, be- because I was underage, so I wasn't allowed to sign any contracts in Germany. So I asked my dad, uh, hey, can we go onto a bicycle ride? I have something to share with you. I was like shivering, right? Because like over 20 years ago, it, it, it sort of wasn't the typical thing you would ask as a 15-year-old, uh, your parents, hey, you know, can you sign a contract in my name so that I can sell this sort of web project nobody knew about? And obviously nowadays, you know, also with movies like The Social Network and so on, it's quite popular and people want to be entrepreneurs. Back then, people looked down on entrepreneurs. That's like, oh, yeah, mm. he's, he's jobless. You know, he doesn't have any opportunities, right? That's why he's doing his thing. So that's sort of how it started uh, with the online gaming. And um, then, you know, it, it, it's, it, it sort of developed from there. So... You, then I got a few business partners, people transferred money to me, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars a month, but I, I didn't have any paper trail for that. And that's sort of how InvoiceBerry started my online invoicing software where, you know, um, my business partner at the time, he had transferred me probably six digits that year, uh, six figures that year. And, you know, then he told me, hey, uh, my accountant tells me I need some invoices for all these transfers, right? Like, you know, the tax man wants to see some money. So then I, I Googled some sort of invoice templates, downloaded them, uh, sent invoices to him. And then the following year, my parents' accountant asked me, hey, Uber, where's those invoices? You know, I, I have you have to pay your taxes and so on. And I said... Oh, oopsie days. He said, uh, you know, on my old laptop, business is going well. I download, I, 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 um, I bought a new laptop and, you know, uh, it's on my old laptop. That's before Dropbox, before any sort of cloud storage solutions were popular. And back then I already was thinking, Hey, there needs to be a solution rather than this USB, uh, you know, um, USB device to, to plug in and to, you know, take a backup. There needs to be some other solution. And that's how I was thinking about InvoiceBerry probably five to 10 years before I actually launched it. There are so many things in there that I want to ask about. The first one is, well, actually, hold on. Let me, let me step back for a second. To, to have that entrepreneurial bent at 14 and, and at, fi- at 15 to be like, hey, dad, can we go on a bike ride? And have me convince you to help me sign a contract. I think you're completely right in saying that that's probably not the average conversation that a 15-year-old is having on a bike ride with their parents. Um, but beyond that, to then see that and and be able to make additional successes and kind of carry that momentum forward, I think that's a testament to just how driven and motivated you were to make things like that continue to work. And and you had, it sounds like an understanding very early on of what it was about the game that you were successful because of, or at least had a good intuition for it. Is that accurate? Or do you feel that way about? Yeah. I, I think what's 
important is sort of to get the momentum. Like even nowadays, you know, like to, w- when you launch a new product, I think I had that momentum, right? So it took me one weekend from probably on a Thursday or Friday, I, I got upset and this idea popped into my head, hey, I should, you know, have my own game. And then to just get started and to just get this MVP out there to, you know, not care about if it's 100% perfect, just to, to, to get the ball rolling, to get some momentum, to get um, excited about it, and then to get it in front of people. And as I progressed in my journey, I actually got further away from that. And, you know, nowadays I over-engineer sometimes. I feel like it has to be perfect before anyone can see it. So it's always good to remember how it all started to, you know, just get it out there, get it like dirty quick out there, and then you can improve um, the product or the service or whatever you're offering, right? And um, I, I think, I don't know why I had that when I was younger, but I just had this feeling, hey, this is what I have to do. I had this gut feeling. I just got it ready. And then I just developed it with my first 100, 150 players together. And then obviously I had my business partner and, you know, we just took it from there. And it was just very quickly, you know, like sometimes we had like an update in the morning, another update in the evening, another update in the next morning and so on, you know, just to very quickly evolve and to, um, you know, just improve it like tiny amounts, but you know, every day to improve it rather than to have these long, you know, corporate update cycles of once a month, once a quarter, you know, things like that. I think there's a lot of wisdom in there of talking about that incremental improvement. And I know that's become fairly common or at least a lot more common than maybe it used to be talking about development styles and all this, even thinking about things like project management where you have, you know, uh, sprints versus waterfall development. So just quickly to kind of identify a term that keeps coming up because I want to make sure that everybody listening is caught up on this. So MVP is minimum viable product. And in kind of startup circles, in launching circles, in circles of business, it's a really well-known term for kind of your minim- literally your minimum viable thing that you can bring to market that people are willing to effectively pay for. Would you agree that's a pretty good definition? Uh, yes, definitely. So, and, and I think it's very important to, you know, uh, to start like that because you can always add more later on, right? And, and we've done that mistake uh, and we can talk about that. I've done that mistake with my newest venture, Block Handy, where we engineered it for probably two plus years without talking to anyone about it. And I think we were at least one year, maybe one and a half years late with just pushing it out and getting feedback, um, which made it a more solid, stable product. But at the same time, it just delayed everything, right? So I think it's so, so important. And when I'm saying that, it's sort of a note to myself. And I'm trying to, you know, remind myself, hey, just, you know, do that MVP and get it out there. So what do you think are some of the things that help you mentally keep that momentum when you're early on in a project? and keep you from over-engineering? Because I think this is a common pitfall for a lot of people who are both creative and maybe have the ideal in their head, but also for people who are maybe perfectionists. And I'm completely talking about myself right now too, which is it has to be really good. It has to be super noteworthy before anybody can see it. When in reality, maybe people want something else or maybe there's other things that help you get to that level of, okay, now it's really good. 
Right? What are, so what are some of those things for you that help you carry that momentum forward? I think it's important to separate um, two things there. So the one is to, to keep the momentum alive, you need like tiny wins. So for me, it used to be, okay, we have to hit a certain big milestone. I don't know, 10K MRR, a monthly recurring revenue. And I realized, you know, that's a long milestone, right? Um, so better, you know, at the beginning, it should be to get the first sign up, to get the first person, you know, reaching out by email, there's a buck. So actually celebrate, uh, celebrating a buck as a win in a way, because it means there's a person who went who signed up, who um, used your tool enough to figure out there's a bug, and then to actually care enough to message you, right? They didn't just close the website and say like, oh, whatever. They actually cared enough to message you. So actually to celebrate bugs as wins in the beginning is, I think, a very big thing. And I'm you know, nowadays in like some side projects I'm launching or, you know, like even a blog handy, if I get some customer feedback or bug request, I'm actually quite happy because it means people care about what we're doing and they want to improve it together as a community, right? So mm-hmm. I, I, I think that's at the beginning more important than any uh, big milestone. And, you know, to go from launch to the first $10,000 in monthly revenue, that's just a long journey. And this is very hard to, it's sort of the marathon, right? But, you know, you want to go step by step and look at it. And um, this is sort of what motivates me every day. Just did I get a new uh, person to sign up, to, you know, like reach out, also to pay, obviously, you know, that's great, right? <laughs> you don't want to say no to money, but um it's also great, you know, to see it mentioned somewhere, right? Uh, you know, to hear from people, hey, it was mentioned on a podcast by by some other guests that they're using that tool. We 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 get a number of invoiceberry signups from podcasts, but I didn't even appear on those podcasts. So it was a guest talking about invoiceberry on the podcast. So that's obviously quite. Um, Nice. And, and that sort of, you know, feeds your ego, that feeds your momentum. And I love that sort of feedback loop. Some of what I'm hearing in this is, is it sounds like you almost try to capitalize on what mentally I've labeled as maybe pride of participation, right? Where people are happy to be engaged in the, in the product and the process early on or whatever it is you're building and just being a part of it and being able to say, Hey, Uva, here's here's a dollar or here's a whatever. But also, hey, here's some, some way that I want to use this. And to have that connectivity where they can then help feed back into the product and maybe make it something more like what they want to use, which then for you as, a, as an entrepreneur, as the person building it, that sort of feedback, at least for me, when I get stuff like that is invaluable because it's, it's like, oh, this is what people want within what I'm building. Well, now I don't have to do as much user research because they're just telling me straight what I want. Which is yeah, no, a hundred percent. And so I think that's why the whole open and public, uh, sorry, built in public, uh, or like uh, open build, built in public, however you want to call it, that movement um, is so big in recent years because obviously it's a marketing tool because you're whatever you're you're on Twitter or any of the indie hackers or any of those platforms, and you sort of 
gets a permission to share your link and your progress. So, so you sort of get permission to do marketing because you're also sharing your lessons and you're building in public. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, obviously the people are like, like the potential customers or customers, the signups, the users, they're engaged uh, with the new project or company that's being built in public. And that's sort of what I did when back in the day when I was a teenager doing my games, right? So I was sort of building in public with um, players. With my B2B like uh, business approach with Invoice Baby and Block Handy, I, I do a bit of a different approach because I don't 100% believe in building in public there because it's a business product rather than a consumer product. And I do feel I don't want, I, I want to get feedback, as you said, sort of like I want feedback and I want to build a roadmap based on customer needs, but I don't want um, to think that the customers can decide what feature um, will be built next, which happens to a lot of SaaS companies I see nowadays They're launching, let's say, a lifetime deal, and then they're being pushed in this direction that um, you have to integrate with those other lifetime deals. You have to um, build according to that. And I don't want that because I want, I, I feel I have a very good gut feeling. And that mixed with my experience of over 15 years in SaaS, 20 plus years in like the online space. And, you know, plus the experience of my customers, I, I feel this sort of mix uh, decides on the, roadmap but ultimately i'm the company owner and i want to you know make that decision and this goes back to i want to say like 2007 or 2008 when i read um chasing streets and uh dhh's um book getting real if you know them the base uh, camp founders and um their first book i, I think they've written like five six books by now and they thought they talked a lot about uh, product development and one example i always give is that when you have a list in your product you basically decide how many items you show per page so for example we show 20 invoices at invoiceberry that's it you can't change that to 30 or to 50 There, there is no little um drop down menu where you change that number because it's cleaner in the user interface because, you know, we take away that milliseconds of deciding um, in your head, like, oh, should I change this number or not? We just decide that for you. And I quite like that approach. And when I talked um, at Invoiceberry to, for example, accountants at the beginning, they wanted to change an invoicing software, which Invoiceberry was, to an accounting package because that's what they're used to, right? Mm-hmm. So the more I talked to accountants, the more they wanted to change us from a, like a simple invoicing software to a very complicated full accounting package, which it wasn't, right? I, I didn't want to go there. There are other solutions already there. And so you always have to be careful with who you're talking to and what advice you take on board when you develop a product. And especially, you know, when you're building in public, it, you know, you might be sharing information too early. You might be pushed into one or the other direction too early. And if you don't have like a very strong stand and like believe in yourself a lot, then you might 
go into the wrong direction, right? And you build a product that actually, you know, one year down the line, you look at it and you're like, hold on, this is not what I wanted, right? Yeah. And um, I I learned that in games, I learned that in, uh, with Invoice very a lot, we had customers who wanted to change it to something completely else. And I'd rather lose a customer and tell them, hey, go here, go there. You know, we're not building what you're trying to accomplish. Right. Mm. And um, so I think it's important, you know, to 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 make that separation. This is the customer's opinion. And this is actually what we're trying to build. And we're trying to find, you know, a common ground somehow. You make a really good point. And I, I, I really like hearing you describe that process and that delicate balance of taking in feedback, taking in opinions, taking in perspectives of the people that are using your product or the people that are engaging with whatever you're making. But then also remembering that at the end of the day, you are the leader that is steering the ship, so to speak. And with that, you have to kind of curate and filter out what you think is relevant and important versus what you think maybe is not mission aligned with whatever it is you're doing. And just to tack on something from maybe a more traditional creative arts perspective, I feel like this is a really underappreciated aspect of when you're building something that is artistic because you probably have a vision for it, but then also it can it can easily dip into kind of crowd-pleasing or playing to your as many people as possible. And in that, you can really easily lose that thread of the authentic thing that you were chasing or you were trying to bring out because you're just trying to play to the audience and make them happy. And, and, and I think if you remember back in the day, every time Facebook, for example, had a big update, everyone complained about it and how they're going to leave Facebook and how it's going to die. And, you know, this was, I don't know, 10 years ago, right? Yep. Uh, people that said, and I mean, look where we are nowadays, right? And I think every time you make a bold move, you know, it obviously might pay off or it's not going to pay off. But I think you have to make those bold moves sometimes. And you just have to, you know, be ahead of the curve, right? You you just have to decide um, what you want uh, to accomplish with your company. Do you just want to be that crowd pleaser, like you said, or do you want to, uh, you know, actually, you know, invent something new, or do you want to just, you know, go to the next level where maybe people, you know, they still need half a year, a year, two years to catch up with your, um, with your thinking. You've just identified something else, which is really cool, which I, I love hearing. And that's as somebody who is building, as a maker, as a creative person, as somebody who's creating a product, a service, something to connect with your audience. You, you kind of have taken on the responsibility of thinking out ahead and going, okay, where's, where are we all headed in the next three months, six months, year, two years, five years? How can I position or you know put myself down the road three months, six months, a year with something that's going to be useful then and maybe not as much now or trying to then. And I guess this is kind of the beauty of building in public is you can you can try and get that alignment, that parity earlier than saying, we're going to work on something for two years. And then two years later, realizing that the audience and the product are actually very far apart on their proverbial paths, which is a trap that I've fallen into. It sounds like something you've mentioned has happened to you before. And I think that's... I think it happens to many an ambitious 
entrepreneur or maker or builder. It's just you have this great idea and you make you make a guesstimate or you make a you form a hypothesis and then you build something to test that hypothesis. And it sounds like a lot of what we're circling around is trying to shorten that feedback cycle so that you can keep your hypothesis closer to. I'm going to put reality in quotes here because it's all reality. The reality you have is, you know, it's very valid, but keeping that parity between the reality of a lot of people who are probably going to use what you're making and then you as the person who is building it. So I think that's an incredible bite of wisdom for people. Just like try to decrease that iteration cycle, try to decrease that feedback time so that you can have a tighter relationship with the people who are going to be using or consuming or engaging with whatever you're making. And that's complete kudos to you. I totally agree. And maybe this is a good follow-up question, which is, do you feel like or how do you feel like the speed of technology is affecting your ability to iterate quickly on things these days? Because for me, it feels like things are getting faster or there's a iteration cycle that is happening at an increasing rate. How do you feel about that? It's very interesting. I I do feel it goes in both directions. It sort of goes faster and slower at the same time because from my own experience, my um, things I started earlier in my life somehow took off faster, maybe because I had a different approach to it, maybe because I didn't have a wife and kids back then, and I had more time to work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> of course, but um, so I think the one um, thing that was faster, let's say 10 years ago, 15 years ago, even five years ago, people were expecting less. So like I said, my first game, it was a white page uh, with blue links. There was no CSS. And then, you know, Oh, is the next update added some design to it, some CSS. But you know, back then, let you had a few lines of code for the styling and the CSS. Now, um, you you know, you have like tens of thousands of lines of CSS styling code, and um, so I do think things take longer from a perspective of the product has to be more well-rounded nowadays rather than back in the day. But at the same time, the tools we got nowadays are just amazing, right? We have all these no-code tools, um, you know, all these design tools, these editors, uh, you know, like Y-Code and Editor X and Bubble and Webflow and, you know, all of them. So obviously nowadays to just sign up for it, uh, one of those tools or for multiple tools, right? So I've been on some SaaS um, websites where you can tell it's just like a combination of different no-code tools. So they sort of use like an Airtable as a database. They use a Webflow as a front. They use some other, you know, no-code tools. And they use, let's say, Block Handy for their blogging. And so they just built on top of all these tools where back in the day, that was like a three to six months development time um, at a lot of development cost, time and money-wise. But then let's say you only had your server costs. So nowadays it feels it takes them a weekend or like a week to create all of that. But they have a big uh, monthly bill of all these different tools. Um, so I think it's faster and you get quicker to your MVP. And then obviously after that, 
you might have to recode everything and recreate everything uh, in, in your own code, right? But you can at least evaluate, is that a good business? Uh, does it make sense or not? So I think we're shifting from a more developer-centric, um, let's say, process to a more marketeer-centric process. You still have to have a bit of a developer problem-solving brain. You can't just think about sales, sales, sales. But we're shifting to a direction if you have a bit of tech knowledge and marketing knowledge and you just you know use this list of tools, you can build a fairly good MVP, right? And you can get your first five, $20,000 monthly revenue just by, you know, hacking together and, you know, mixing and matching Webflow and a bunch of other tools. So I, I think it's quite exciting, but also it means you have more competition, right? Because back in the day, if you're a marketeer, you need to go and find a developer. I remember back when I lived in London um, a long time ago, and the whole sort of startup scene started there. Uh, like any pitch you went to, nine out of 10 people were marketeers looking for co-founding developers. And one pitch was maybe a developer who didn't know how to market. And, you know, everyone was just jumping on that person. But I think that's shifting now because, you know, you have all these tools, right? Which makes it faster and easier to get, you know, your product out there. Also, with the little um, add-on, I think it makes it a bit less exciting and a bit less unique, right? Because you still have these constraints. If you cut, if you start with an empty document and you have to code in whatever language you code, you sort of, it's a white canvas, right? You can go any direction. And these no-code tools, a lot of them restrict you to certain things. So... As well, I, I'm not sure, you know, coming back to the whole creativity and art, arts, uh, you know, thinking, if that's helpful. Uva, I think it is extremely helpful for several reasons. Here's why. One, I think a lot of creative individuals, people who maybe self-define as creative professionals or independent artists and makers, just from personal experience, I have a strong feeling that a lot of my friends who are incredibly creative and who can think laterally or symbolically in ways about things that just boggle the mind when you when you hear them talk like how did you make that connection there's kind of this grand irony in that they feel like they cannot understand a lot of technical tools right even something like webflow i can imagine sitting a few friends down and being like here's how you use webflow and they would disqualify themselves from understanding it even before they had a chance to realize maybe how simple or straightforward it is. Once you understand basic things about HTML, CSS, the DOM, all that stuff, which takes, you know, maybe a few days to get up to speed on. On top of that, I feel like the artist's perennial problem is making money off of what they do because there's a purity in, in creating something that just makes your soul sing. And I feel like a lot of artists are trying to find ways to do that. And things about Web3, you know, NFTs, all of these things that are kind of trendy or topically interesting that a lot of artists would, maybe their ears would perk up when you said NFTs. They'd be like, oh, isn't that the thing online with the blockchain and the Bitcoin? It's like, yes, but also there's, you know, there you do have to dive into the tech a little bit 
But I think one of the beautiful things about what you're saying and, and what you're describing is that, that that depth that you have to dive is now shallower than it's ever been. And that's not to say that it's not a little bit deep, but you don't have to build a proverbial submarine and go down to the bottom of the Mariana Trench of you know C-sharp or SQL databases anymore. You can pick up a Notion and a Webflow and an Airtable and kind of Lego brick things together so you can do more of what you want to do, which is building things that resonate with whoever. I, I, I get your point. So you, you're more thinking from the, like, yeah, we have a larger amount of creatives who are now able to bring the vision, you know, to life. But I'm wondering, so, so I completely agree with you on that point, but I'm wondering if that larger amount, like, are they truly bringing the vision to life or are they getting like an 80% version of the vision to life? Mm -hmm. Which makes sense what you're saying that if I can get an 80% vision to life and make some money, then I can use that money to actually, you know, go from this 80 to 100% by maybe hiring a team to get it uh, done. I mean, that, that's true. And, and again, so this is me being a bit old school, you know, maybe and thinking I want to get from zero to 100 and I don't want to, you know, make any compromises. And that's probably my sort of perfection um, jumping in there. Uh, that's why sort of that, like, I, I'm unsure if this is um, the best solution. But yeah, I, I, I do agree. We, we get a larger amount of people, of creatives, uh, you know, at least getting some version. Yeah. there's You've identified something in there that I think is worth calling out, which is you can get to 80% of your vision, but maybe not 100% because the tools maybe don't bend in the way that you expect them to, or there's limitations in certain places where if you were building it from scratch, it would be harder to get to that level. So the fixed cost would be higher, but then the marginal difference, there would be no impediment there. And that's a really, I need to think about that a little bit more before I respond to it because I, I instinctively agree with you. I think that there is that you're, you're more likely to hit a hard ceiling in something now than maybe you were in the past. But getting to the table of using a certain tool or having that ability in the first place, that barrier to entry has dropped quite a bit. Really quick, we'll get back to the show in just a moment. But if your creative gears are turning already, you'd probably love the Create Connected newsletter. It's the companion to this podcast that builds on each episode with useful bites of creative wisdom that help you grow your creative skills and improve your practice. Also, it's totally free. Get the latest issue when you sign up at createconnected.com. Use the link in the show notes. And now, back to the show. So it's a... It's a challenge. There's there's certainly a balance in there. And, and yeah, there there's a question begging to be answered, which is, you know, how do you bend some of these tools or how do you know when it's time to go and build a small thing to let you do that remaining 20%, right? And I, I'm asking this openly. I don't expect you to have an answer to this, but I'm, I'm realizing that's something that I need to go and think about now. <laughs> I think most people, so, so my initial answer would be most people decide once enough money is involved, you know, it, it, it makes more sense, right? So once I have enough uh, customers uh, who buy that product or use that service, 
uh, where I sort of have enough cash flow, then even so maybe nothing else changes, but sort of your requirements get you know higher, your standards. You're thinking, oh, actually, I don't like this thing here or that limitation here. The same thing that you know worked for the last maybe two years in your tool. Now you might think, hey, now I make enough money, so I I, I sort of want to upgrade, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, any car gets you from A to B, but most people, if they make a certain amount of money, they say, hey, why not upgrade to, you know, I don't know, the heated seats or the something else in my car, right? So I, I, I do feel um, that that has to do mainly with money. When you feel you have to operate, but then again, um, if you look at something like Slack, right? The, I don't know, 20, 30 billion was their valuation before they went off the stock market. They built their desktop app uh, with Electron, right? So, you know, a lot of developers are laughing at it and they're saying it's not a native app and so on. But then you see like Slack using Electron, the framework, to you know, builds their own app, right? So then you're thinking, if Slack can do it with a framework, why why do I have to custom code everything? Why do I have to start from scratch and, you know, invent the wheel again? And, you know, we had said when we thought about uh, adding a mobile app to InvoiceBerry, it was like, people are laughing at me. Why, why, why wouldn't you do a native app? There are so many companies that, you know, large corporations, billion-dollar corporations that decide to use existing solutions. So who am I to, you know, decide I have to have it all custom-created, uh, you know, like line by line? And um, so, so I do feel um, it's difficult when to upgrade when it's needed. And um, I, I think you have to keep a cool head, right? Be- because you might think, you need to do it because now you make enough money, but actually you might never have to upgrade your no-code tools. Maybe you can run a billion-dollar company based on Webflow and you know a few other no-code tools. Who knows? Yeah. That is such an intuitive thing of like, oh, now I'm making money. Now I can afford to go and have a development shop build this thing or bring on a team that can raise this other thing that I had. I thought money was the obstacle. When in reality, maybe you're facing... Uh, it sounds like a very classic economics problem, which is um, specialized economies, right? Where you have individuals who produce just one thing and because they they only focus on producing one thing, they can do it better than anybody else with a margin above what the aggregate would be otherwise. And so what you're seeing or what you're describing to pull it into the theoretical is, yeah, even if you build your own internal Webflow, it's still not going to be as good as Webflow. And you could sink a ton of money into that. Why? Because Webflow is all they're focusing on is building a really good no-code website builder. That's their only job for the most part. You know, templates and all that stuff, all those add-ons. So it, it yeah, it, it kind of regrounds that economic thinking of there are really good specialist tools that are probably going to cost you a fraction of what it would cost to build a not so good version of it that you can slap your own name and brand on, which is uh, maybe one of the problems of ego as you get more successful is just thinking, hey, we can build it better. 
maybe you might you might be able to build it doesn't mean you can build it better and also is that the best use of your resources is a a recurring question i think that's the most important question that that's the most important question is that the best use of your resources i think it's such a important question and and actually a few years ago uh, you know i looked into personal development i started journaling i love it and what i'm doing nowadays sort of of my questions that reoccurs a lot does this make sense is this the best use of my time and money um which more or less is the same what you just stated right um, and whenever I want to make a big shift, uh, you know, think about a new side project, think about a new product feature, I'm asking myself, and I'm actually writing it down with uh, on on paper with pen and paper. I'm like, is this the best use of my? And you know, it's not just competing there with other potential, you know, new products or new features, but even with family time. If this doesn't make sense, even if in a business perspective I have time, if it isn't really the best use, I'm like, okay, I'd rather just finish work early, right? Um, and, and spend it with the family because you shouldn't develop anything uh, you know, that's outside of the core product because then you have exactly what you said. You, you, you have like all add-ons which you still have to maintain. That's normally... It's a bigger issue. It's not that you can create it, but you also have to maintain it. And if you outsource it to a company like Webflow or, or any other you know, company, any other provider you're using, if it's like a live chat intercom on your website or whatever, you know, they maintain it. They maintain the service, the backups, you know, like if any APIs are changing, you know, it's their problem, right? This is why you're handing them over money. You're not giving them money for the product, you're giving some money to solve your issue and to not worry about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is the same, like at InvoiceBerry, our customers, yes, they create invoices and send them out, but we are solving the problem of, you know, not having to worry about losing their invoices, about, you know, like taking payments. You know, this is sort of what we're helping them. And um, I think that's why it's very important to, to always think, is this a core product we are offering or is this you know like a distraction towards you know getting the best core product experience you have just reminded me of the importance of recurringly asking myself the question of is this the best use of my time right because that remains relevant even as you achieve levels of success i want to kind of not rewind but i want to step back into something that we were talking about earlier which is you know Minimum viable product, the process of building something that reaches a minimum threshold of good enough to put out and, and also kind of in that the building and public process. So you mentioned kind of you need a basic level of technology, you need a basic level of marketing knowledge. And then beyond that, it becomes how well and how fast and all of this you can build. So if you were to describe for an average kind of entrepreneur founder these days, let's say solopreneur somebody who's building an offering that theoretically can be maintained by one person until it reaches a point where you can hire on a few people to help. What would you say is a good average window to try to build an MVP in? One week, a month, a year? 
just gen- a general range? Yeah, it's such a difficult question to answer. So from my experience, I would say anything from uh, two days to two years, right? That's sort of my experience um, in the last few decades. But I'd say realistically, obviously it depends what sort of problem you're solving, right? So if you're trying to launch a new newsletter or like have some sort of uh, paid newsletter or free newsletter offering your launching, this is a weekend project in a way. You you set up a landing page, you you know, sign up for the newsletter um, software and you, you know, shoot out your first newsletter to the first, you know, friends and family who you added to the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're building a SaaS tool or software as a service tool, and let's say you, you know, need a landing page, a marketing landing page realistically, uh, even if you're not a designer, so I'm a check of all trades, right? So, so I can develop, I um, can do SEO, marketing, and so on. The only thing I can't do, I'm sort of colorblind, right? Like, like I, I don't understand what looks good. And um, so I'm not a designer at all. Um, but still, I normally design the first version of any tool I create. So, you know, just to save time and to not have this back and forth and trying to pixel uh, like to push every pixel um, perfect but yeah. so I, I coming back to the example so i think you have to set up you know like your website your landing page you need some sort of database system for the people to sign up you need some sort of you know like front end fit so I, i'd say if you work full time on it at least i see two weeks um, to get an MVP ready, maybe longer, depending on what sort of problem you're trying to solve. I'd say if it takes you more than four weeks, maybe, unless it's obviously something very complicated and you literally can't condense it. But if it takes more than four weeks to, to make the first version smaller. So in case of, uh, let's say, InvoiceBerry, we launched only with invoices, right? We we didn't have any expense tracking, which we have nowadays. So that way, obviously, we made the product a bit smaller. And um, so that would be a natural example for me. Is that you know you just try to um, reduce some of the functionality of the core functionality or some of the additional features that you map out. Most likely, when you first had your idea and you wrote it all down, you can really limit down by saying okay this is version two this is version three this is version 10 maybe and you know to just really try to get like a very minimal version one and maybe you're never gonna even work on version five or ten but yeah so so i think like two to four weeks in my opinion of course it's not gonna be the perfect design website copy everything will be you know up to uh, you know it, it's uh, possible to improve it right but um and you will get criticism but then again remember you did that in two or four weeks you didn't take two or four years to get that done so i i, I think that would be realistic in my opinion depending on what sort of problem you're trying to solve this is let's say to do a new time tracking something like toggle right 
So this would be the web version of it. But then later you maybe want the Chrome extension, uh, Mac OS app, a Windows app, and so on. So obviously that's not included in two or four weeks, right? I'm talking about the bare minimum to get something out there, to get some feedback and some momentum. And, you know, once the first people sign up, you know, then obviously work on the version two, three, four to add more features and and. and I love how this is already connecting with this question of, is this the best use of my time? Because I think some of what, what's coming out of this is saying, don't spend so long on it that you cannot validate the idea and then re-ask yourself the question of, is working on this offering the best use of my time? Which I think is incredibly wise. With that two to four week time frame with kind of an asterisk on it, right? Which is, it, it really depends on what you're building. It really depends on you know, how long it takes to assemble all the things. And certainly two to four weeks is not a steadfast rule, but what are some of the boilerplate or the template elements that you think are good to have in place for pretty much any, let's say, digital business or online business, right? You need maybe SEO, you need a landing page, you need a payment processor. Like, what do you see as kind of those essential things that you always reach for when you're building a new offering? I start pretty simple. I start with a Trello board, Kanban style, you know, a backlog of all the ideas. And I just take some time to, you know, pop down each idea as a separate item. And then, you know, you have your, um, in my process, I have my backlog, my design stage, my, um, that I'm, uh, that I have to work on it to do stage, my review and my done stage. And I tend to, so you need your marketing page, right? Um, I normally custom code this. I think next time I'm going to use Webflow because we went as far after we custom coded everything, then we built our own mini CMS um, in the back end, which just doesn't make any sense at all. But, you know, once you have this sort of investment uh, and the sunk cost, you where we just keep going down there. But yeah, I would recommend something like Webflow let's say, or even card uh, at Blockhandy, we have a lot of card users actually using us now. And um, so you need your marketing page. And then what else do you need? So you need a blog most likely, especially with the two to four weeks thing where you might only have screenshots. So again, like a lot of MVPs actually start where they, you know, just have a screenshot and, uh, you know, like a sign-up page and then the sign-up page says, hey, uh, we're going to activate you later on or you're on the wait list. And, you know, I mean, what is the wait list, right? Um, it's not like the servers can't process, you know, set many new users. It's not like chat GPT where millions of people try to access it and the server infrastructure crashes. It's just list because you don't have a product yet. Right. And some people are upfront about it and others are actually trying to sort of trick you, um, which I'm not a big fan of, but, you know, it, it exists. And then, yes, of course, uh, go for Stripe for payments. Again, we custom coded our entire subscription module until I asked myself that question in January uh, when we had some issues with it. I asked myself, is this the best time? Um, is that the best use of my time? And I realized, no, it's not. I should just use everything Stripe offers me because nobody who's using your product, who loves it so much that they pop in the credit card details, cares if it's hosted by you 
and like all custom or if it's hosted by Stripe, right? So you just want to pay for the product to continue using your product. So that's a great learning. And it took me just 10 years to understand that, right? So, <laughs> so yeah, Stripe, definitely. Um, or any other, you know, payment provider like Paddle, uh, any of the other ones, right? Square, whatever. Um, what else do we use? And then, yes, you know, then I know code things, uh, you know, we use like a cloud infrastructure. So you should look into AWS or, you know, Microsoft or DigitalOcean. We're using that one. Um, I sort of have a very standardized process when I launch new projects nowadays to, you know, just start my server, you know, set up the marketing page and, and so on and so on. Um, but I think what I would recommend most people if they want to launch fast is, you know, just to, to explore maybe on the first few days to explore some no code tools, right. Um, just to get familiar with it and, and, and just to understand what tool to use and to not think it, how can I make it work for 10,000 users? Just, you know, how can I make it work for the first few users and then take it from there? So just picking those tools that kind of let you stand something up versus scale it to an insane degree because the odds of that happening are yeah. you know lower than just trying to get it up and out the door. I've noticed this with a lot of other founders too is everybody kind of has their boilerplate that they reach for. They have their their five or six go-tos that they pull in and kind of use to to build out the initial board and then they populate the rest of it with stuff and go, okay, maybe maybe in this case we don't use Stripe. Maybe we use something else. I don't see that talked about as frequently with founders as like just that common set of tools that everybody has that that is their starting toolkit. And so I think it's really cool to hear that from you. I, I, I think it's also hard to, I mean, especially with the no-code space, there's so many new tools popping up. So of course, Stripe, you know, has been there for a long time. We were um, one of the first UK um, beta customers when, when, when the beta customers, when, when they launched in the UK, um, but, you know, so Stripe, obviously I can recommend because it has been around for a long time. And even if someone listens to this, you know, episode in three years time in five years, Stripe will be around, right? But a lot of the no-code tools is changing and they might be outdated within a month or two. So this is why I'm saying, you know, for the infrastructure, you know, DigitalOcean or AWS, it, it's going to still be there in like five years time. Uh, Stripe still going to be there. Webflow as well, right? So, you know, and everything else, you know, you can obviously try to use new tools and, you know, I've, you know, Block Handy is a new tool, right? So, but I have the same thing that people ask me, hey, will you be in the future? And, you, you know, so, so you have to also trust new tools, which I also do, right? When, when, I, when I sign up for them, uh, but you just have to do your research. And that's what I mean. Like maybe the first day, half, half day, the first two days, just, you know, do some research. What are the best tools and which tools work best with, uh, you know, which other tools, right? What tools are the best connections um, and, and so on. Yeah. So kind of reaching and figuring out which tools are new and worthy of trying out versus which ones are just going to be always good choices because the chances of them still being there and five years yeah if aws disappears most of the internet disappears with it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So think, selections like that, I think, are pretty safe bets. But also, yeah, like you said, finding the ones that are worth trying out using and the new, the new entrance to the market, which may solve a problem much more quickly, which just helps you iterate that much faster. I want to start maybe steering us towards the, the close of the conversation. So the first one to start wrapping us up is what is your current Creative North Star? It's probably been the same mission for a few years now, probably for a decade now. So it started uh, with InvoiceBerry that I wanted to help small business owners, specifically micro small business owners. So I started it right when I came out of university and I just was thinking very hard, uh, what do I actually want to you know, accomplish, right? What do I want to sort of leave? I don't want to say it's a legacy, but what, what do I sort of want to be known for? And I was very interested during my student years in micro small businesses. I studied one of only two available entrepreneurship um, university degrees in the UK at the time. And so I, during that three-year program, I interviewed a ton of small business owners. And I realized these are my people, right? And so that started with InvoiceBerry, where I just wanted to take something complicated and scary, such as finances and numbers and invoicing, and make it as simple as possible. And then over the years, while I was running InvoiceBerry, uh, from a marketing perspective, my strength uh, has always been content marketing. It was first technical SEOs and SEOs, and it turned more into content marketing. I hired hundreds of content writers. I had a team of editors. We, we had hundreds of thousands of visitors on our blog at the time on InvoiceBerry. And I just realized I sort of became the content marketing guy in my circle of friends. So everyone came to me and asked me about content marketing related stuff. And after some time, I realized that I give out a lot of advice and it's very little implementation. And my advice was mainly based on, you know, how to hire writers, uh, how to, you know, uh, give them tasks, how to automate the whole process that it's uh, almost running by itself to find new writers. Uh, but I never told people how to actually get that written content onto their website. And this is sort of also how Block Handy started. So it was sort of a, a continuation of my journey at InvoiceBerry, where I said I want to help small business owners to run their business and to take away this anxiety about invoicing and this whole accounting jargon. And then it was this continuation of my work where I said, I want to help small business owners, solopreneurs, freelancers to do their marketing, right? Um, how can they, you know, set up a blog? And 90% of people who you talk to, they would just know WordPress. Or to be honest, 100%, they said, okay, how do I set up my WordPress? And they were setting up WordPress. And it's easy to do. Any host that has their solution, a one-click install, but it's kind of interesting because it's a default theme. It's uh, you know, and again, they asked me, so do you know a developer or a designer who can adjust my WordPress blog to my existing website? And, uh, you know, so we again came back to uh, the financial, uh, you know, like commitment you have to make because you have to hire someone, you have to pay 
um, those guys to adjust it. You have to pay them to maintain it. So this is how Block Handy started, right? Where you have this little code, it's one little snippet. You pop it into your existing website. It takes you like 90 seconds and um, it just loads your blog. And on the back end, we sort of tried to take a copy of, let's say, WordPress uh, version three or version two, like a very old version where it wasn't that complicated yet, right? Mm -hmm. Where it was just an editor, you can write in it, you can, you know, publish it, that's it. And we added some SEO functionality to it, SEO analyzer, because that's the number one um, feature that anyone installs on WordPress, right? Like, because that's why you're blogging for SEO to get new customers, right? So I sort of went back to the root um, there as well, where I said, I want to solve someone's problem. They're scared of tech. It's one of these things, like they're scared of finances and accounting, and they're also scared of tech. There's a lot of tech jargon and things, and you know, even no code of small business owners don't know what no code means, what you know, AI is, GPT is, and all of those things, right? So we're in a bubble there where we think everyone talks about that. But in reality, everyone in our bubble talks about it. But there are a lot of people who have no clue. And this is sort of, I'm trying to bridge that gap there. And so this is what I'm feeling, uh, you know, we're doing at Block Handy now, where we're helping people who use, you know, Shopify, Wix, Webflow, Cart, um, of course, if you look at the website builder, landing page builder like Cart, it's so much simpler than Webflow because you just create your one page, but it has the limitation that it doesn't have a blog. So you see a lot of creative people starting a Cart page, designing it beautifully, but they have no idea how to get a blog installed. And this is where we're helping. And um, so that's sort of my mission there to help them to grow their business and they know that they can grow their business with content marketing and that means seo and content marketing that means publishing content and they know they need a blog for that but they don't know how to install it how to get there how to make it have the same you know look and feel like the existing website and um, they might have issues with you know seo they don't understand what the meta description is meta title is uh, you know, they don't know about, you know, what keywords they should be using. So that's the one feature we have in our editor built in. Um, so to help them. And, um, yeah, you know, that, that's sort of my mission at the moment to help micro small businesses, solopreneurs, people who, who you know, um, some of them struggle with tech. And they're, but they're very creative, right? So as we discussed earlier, very creative people, but I'm trying with this and in a way, you know, Block Handy is a no-code tool. I'm trying to get them there, right? I'm trying to uh, hold the hand, so to speak, and get them to publish their first blog post. And to be honest, this is such a rewarding uh, feeling when you see someone and, you know, I read some of the blog posts and some of our customers send them to me and I'm amazed, you know, it's such a, when a creative person writes a blog post and they pour all their heart and soul into it and they're so happy that they were able to do it 
because you gave them the means to get there, right? Rather than telling them, hey, you know, here's WordPress, get started. I love that. I think that's such a deep description of not just what you're doing and what you've done in the past, but why you've done it and how you've kind of bridged that gap of just to restate it, you're helping small business owners, solopreneurs draw the line and bridge the gap between the things they maybe think or know they should be doing and maybe a little bit of technical apprehension or uh, not a full understanding of exactly how to do it or how to do it to the level and the nice, the the quality level that they want to do it to, right? They don't just want the default WordPress theme and they know that, but maybe don't have, they don't know what they don't know in some cases to go and seek seek out the things that will help them find a better looking blog or find a more elegant invoicing solution. So second question to wrap us up, if you could reach back and give a piece of advice creative or otherwise, to Uva one year ago, what would it be? One year ago, probably I should tell myself just uh, launch it, right? So this was actually the time when we were building Block Handy and we didn't launch it. And to be honest, it was good enough a year ago to launch it. So um, my advice would be just believe in yourself and get it out there and be you know more vulnerable and um, I, I, I right now forgot who said it, but um, one of the startup guys who said, if you're not, you know, embarrassed by your first version, you launch too late, right? Um, maybe Paul Graham. Uh, I'm not sure. Before. Yeah, so sort of this is exactly uh, where I was one year ago. Just, you know get out there faster but you know i didn't in the end and i guess the second best time to start anything is you know right now and um so <laughs> i'm happy that eventually we launched it um end of last year but uh yeah i i, I and i think a piece of advice to anyone is just you know believe in yourself more and you know just to um if you think your mvp is still three months away from getting launched just say hey how about i have to get it launched in three weeks or in three days you know what corners would i cut and what corners are okay cutting if i have to just you know if, if someone you know holds the gun to my head you know when can i launch i think that ties back to something we were talking about earlier which is just getting that feedback cycle started yeah i think that is a great piece of advice based on what you've said about your past year, but also a great piece of advice for a lot of people who are maybe apprehensive about hitting publish because they think it's not good enough. It's like, well, whether or not whether or not it's good enough is actually secondary to put it out so people can see where it's at, and then that will give you a better sense of how to steer it forward. Which, yeah, I think broadly applicable advice, very good advice to get um, for yourself and for others. Last question, what are some ways for people to keep up with all the exciting things you are doing and building? Probably the best is either to follow me on LinkedIn, just to search for my name, Uber Tricekaka, or just linkedin.com slash Uber Trice. Um, and I'm also relaunching my personal website. It's Uber, U-W-E, Trice, D-R-E-I-S-S, dot com which should be live by the time 
this recording goes live. Uva, this has been a fantastic conversation. I think there's been a lot of very applicable and specific stuff that you've brought up about not just how you know entrepreneurs and solopreneurs and people who are building things and making things can think of their creativity in a more technical way or a more nuanced way about how the process works. But I also think that there's so much wisdom in what you've shared just in terms of iterate the importance of iterating, the importance of building, the importance of kind of getting those gut intuitions and following them, but also trying to quickly figure out what the most important pieces are of what you're building and ask yourself that question of what are the best ways to spend my time. So thank you for joining me on the podcast. This has been a great conversation and I really appreciated having you here. Yeah, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it as well and hopefully talk soon again. That is our show. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. And before you go, I want to share something with you. This show has a companion newsletter that's purpose-built to reinforce each episode with fresh resources that help you amplify your skills and refine your creative practice. You can get the latest issue instantly when you sign up for free at createconnected.com. I put a link in the show notes for you. Till next time, this is Jameson signing off.